This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. We're going to get Jack two follow-up questions to his presentation since we didn't do that before the break. And once we do that, then we'll go to more general questions from you uh, for the panel and anyone you choose. So follow-up questions for Jack to start with. Anybody? Yes. Uh, thank you for your presentation. It's great. Um, so in 20th century, like particularly uh, Marxist circles, you'll see this common distinction between uh, actually existing socialism and then like real socialism. Maybe. It's probably because I'm too close to you. Um, there, and then, of course, uh, Derrida was famous for talking about democracy in sort of similar terms where we're talking about the undeconstructable um, um, eventual uh, democracy. And so my question is, is there also an eventual or an undeconstructible fascism? Uh, because uh, democracy, socialism, for a, you know, a pinko commie academic like me, those are all very comfortable. But I'm wondering about um, the, this question of fascism as a way of opening up the question, uh, are there events um, or undeconstructibles which can be um, evil or problematic or violent or something like that? Or is it, or does violence um, and oppression and these problems always stem from an inability to recognize an event or can they be the correct response to a bad event, if that, if that distinction makes sense? Well, I already, I had a one <clears throat> word answer for you, but you kept on talking. <laughs> And that is when you said, could there be a, a deconstructible national socialism to come, an evil to come? Yes. There's in an uh, interview with uh, Elizabeth Brunesco, one of the uh, sections is entitled, The National Socialism to Come. That is to say, we can dream of evil as well as dream of justice. And uh, so, sometimes when we're dreaming of justice, we produce evil. And when we dream of the, the, the name of God can be a, the name in which we uh, murder. And so, yes, the, the event is a, is a promise slash risk. And uh, it may produce the worst evils. Because you, when you, that's why I said at one point, when you destabilize, you destabilize, for better or for worse. You may, you may make things much worse. I mean, I think for him, by the way, just one quick, quick I think for him, the very, the very form of evil for him uh, at one point is the program, the utterly, totally, completely programmable. Tricky the last part, so that's great. You want to? I guess this is kind of a. Uh, two-part question I was thinking up earlier. Um, uh, I'm kind of new to postmodern philosophy in, in general, uh, and it just hasn't been my background. And uh, one of the questions that has come up during this presentation is, is uh, what's the role of the ideal um, in postmodern, postmodernism? Um, because, you know, there are accusations that either relativism and, and uh, um, and if you can uh, 
Mm. Right. Yeah. with the language. So, uh, so for uh, I know a lot of Husserl, um, and for Husserl, what caught him and what maybe was a motivator behind philosophy as rigorous science um, was was his background in mathematics. Uh, that that you know, um, two plus two equals four, regardless of the the symbols and language, for all cultures, um, a triangle can be grasped. Uh, by anyone. Uh, and, uh, and I think he saw potential in other types of inquiry for that kind of uh, um, uh, for that kind of uh, 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 essence grafting. Um, I'm not sure exactly the term, especially the German. And um, and let's see. Wesenanschauung. Yes, okay, that's it. Um, uh, and, and I think he would say uh, that we could do something similar with other types of inquiry, just that it would be much more difficult, much more complicated. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the first part. And the second part would be related to this, and it has more to do with religion, I guess. Um, uh, confessional theology, this distinction between radical theology and confessional theology. What's the role of confessions, then, and dogma and doctrine in religion? Um, uh, many might see this as a sort of, uh, as a sort of ideal. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if yeah. there's a solid question. Okay. Yeah, uh, there is, we deconstructors are deeply interested in Husserl and in the constitution of ideal objects. Uh, but what we want to do is the very first technical work that Derrida did as a student of philosophy was on the problem of the constitution of ideal objects. Exactly that. And he uh, emphasized, there's just two sides of Husserl in that one, and people keep getting confused. It's like people rushing from one side of the boat to the other when they went with Husserl, the early Husserl. On the one hand, he, he looked like a, a psychologistic, like he, he made mathematics a function of counting. On the other hand, he looked like an idealist. And the Platonist. So the, the first, in the, the first volume of logical investigations, he looked like it was psychologism. Second volume, he looked like Platonism. So they kept running to the other side of the boat. And what he was trying to do was balance the active constitution with the uh, objectivity of the, the ideality of the ideal object. What Derrida does is show in a sort of systematic, radical way that uh, ideal objects are themselves always uh, constituted. And um, their ideality is, uh, is ifish. That is, if you ever started counting, you would get this result. But it doesn't mean that they have some kind of ideality. And then he also showed how deeply dependent the constitution of ideal objects is upon space and time and repetition and writing. So in the history of geometry, this purely empirical thing called writing actually is the clue to the constitution of geometric objects. Um, in the second case, the confessional, you wouldn't want to think, he, he wouldn't think, I don't know that anybody wants to think about the confessional uh, traditions as ideal objects or idealities. For, for him, they're responses. They're, uh, they're, they're ways of giving uh, flesh and blood and space and time and existential presence to the address of the unconditional. So the, the call insists the confessional theologies exist, and then my idea is to keep them in constant, make them porous to each other. I follow up that, uh, uh, and then maybe the other panels, if they want to, uh, what, 
So do you think uh, confessions have a role? I mean, it, it, it Sure. If we didn't have a confession, we wouldn't be talking about anything here. <laughs> okay. We wouldn't have any memory of Jesus or anything else. So... Anything that we call now today religious. Yeah, why don't we address that? Uh, I think one of the things I said last night is relevant here. Um, uh, communities um, of any sort, and religious communities in particular, um, need to have a collective sense of who they are and of their identity. And one of the ways they do this is through shared practices, and the other way is through shared beliefs. Um, and those those two are intertwined; they aren't independent of each other. Um, and so, from a sociological point of view, it seems to me that uh, if there is going to be a religious community, it's going to have to have a confession of some sort. And uh, those those forms of Protestantism that uh, proudly announce that they are non-confessional um, mean that there isn't a place where you could go online and find out the official creed of the Southern Baptist Church. But if you go to a Southern Baptist Church, you'll find that there are certain beliefs that they hold and that are very important to them, that are their creed. Uh, they haven't written them up as a creed. They don't recite it as a creed. Um, but they do recite the, the phrases uh, Often uh, and again, I'm not picking on the Southern Baptists. They're by no means the only non-confessional uh, church that proudly announces their non-confessionality. Um, but um, uh, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, confession in that sense is inescapable as a sociological fact. Um, as a theological fact, um, the question is, um, is this a good confession? Is it legitimate? What, what is its warrant? Um, have, have we said the things we ought to say? And do we think about what we say, the things we ought to think about what we say? The, the meta discourse, uh, which is where I think postmodernism is particularly uh, relevant. I, I will pick on Southern Baptists because I was one for a long time. Um, and it's true. I mean, they, the Baptists take great pride in, in, in not really having a denominational structure and not being a confessional community. But they do have a, what's called the Baptist faith and message, which is a codification of its beliefs. And the, the great irony is that the Baptists are... Um, today are the, one, the, the, the most strident with regard to insisting that sort of those uh, people up for ordination, those people teaching at their seminaries and even at their colleges and universities subscribe to this code of beliefs. And so that for me, this is where I have spoken about a non-dogmatic theology. To me, it's where the, the Protestant principle is really at work. I mean, that, that's where the kind of tradition becomes calcified. And one has, to, one has to sort of be in a position to kind of introduce some kind of movement within that, uh, the, the, those kind of moments in which the, the, the kind of open flux of the tradition uh, gets fixed. It's the balance Jack was referring to earlier. You have too much movement, too much flux, the whole thing disintegrates. Um, and you get too rigid and too calcified and it, it dies uh, that way. And, and keeping some sense of balance between being open and being closed 
um, is, is uh, not at all an easy task uh, for any religious community and its uh, official thinkers, the theologians, uh, yeah. and so forth. But uh, I think that the nature of the task is fairly clear. And it's important, just one quick caveat is that, and this may be a thing Jeff can um, help me think about, so classically the dogmatist was as opposed to the skeptic, and so it was a matter of do you stand somewhere or do you reserve judgment about where to stand? And so there's ways of cashing out academic skepticism in particular, where it's not a denial of the external world, say, like modern skepticism might be, but it's simply a refusal to finally stand because the reasons cut both for and against any true proposition. So it's not a denial of truth, it's just saying we can't affirm truth because the arguments cut both ways. So I genuinely sometimes wonder when we talk about like a non-dogmatic confession, um, I wonder if that means then it's simply a non-confessional confession. Like that, that I'm not sure what it would look like to say, well, it's non-dogmatic, other than to say, well, it's revisable, it's fallible. And so in that sense, I think dogma is being run as a claim about a kind of um, infallible modern conception of a universal truth claim that all rational people would have to ascribe to. Right? I mean, does that sound right? So when you mean non-dogmatic, you mean that second sense, not the first sense. I mean, invoking the language Jack was using earlier, maybe by non-dogmatic, which what I mean, I think, is a kind of conditioned dogmatism, mm -hmm. or a recognition that sort of dogma is conditioned and conditional, and so therefore deconstructible. And, and Karl Barth, sort of the great dogmatic theologian, talks about the fact that you know this massive undertaking that he that he undertakes with writing the church dogmatics, that has to be sort of renewed and done again with every new generation, right? I mean, this isn't the final word with regard to church dogmatics. So that, to me, that's, that's the task of a non-dogmatic theology, recognizing its conditional status. Questions? Yes. Um, is, is there a... If, if we view religion as a constructed form from deconstruction, um, is there a sense that um, religion actually functions as a way to obscure the call so that religion can work in a symbiotic relationship with a culture in which it finds itself so that each can survive and actually functions to cover up the call rather than bring it forth? Sure. Yes. Amen. <laughs> what they said. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's, 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 it's always a risk. You've got to. Every, every response is. Uh, so, what? I mean, what? There has to be a. Is there anything we can do? I mean, just. You know, I'm frustrated. <laughs> Pray for profits. <laughs> P-R-O-F-I-T-S? No. <laughs> Jack, I, I, I always misremember this uh, a little bit, but I, 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 I get the gist of it. And, and there's Jack and, and Richard Carney have had an exchange in which they, they're talking about that kind of uncertainty. And whenever you're, whenever you're opening yourself up to the event of truth, you don't know if it's going to be a positive or a negative event in advance. There's always a degree of undecidability at work 
um, and the, and the you'll you'll know the story better than I. But it's it's you don't know sort of uh, when you're sort of welcoming sort of the, the new birth. You don't know if it's sort of Mary with the baby Jesus or if it's the alien movie with the alien popping out of the stomach, right? <laughs> but can you tell that better than I can? <laughs> Maybe a little more graphic. <laughs> and, and the difference between you and Richard Carney, as I understand it, is you want to say no. You don't. You cannot know in advance. Um, there's a degree of undecidability that goes all the way down. Uh, whereas he wants to suggested yeah that, that's how I understand hermeneutics itself I mean he's he's being he went, he's being very Habermasian I think at that point because I think he wants criteria mm-hmm. for knowing what to do in, in an ambiguous situation whereas the definition of an ambiguous situation is that the criteria are ambiguous and even if you have criteria some criteria are more important than others you don't know what applies at this point and it may be that this is a case where uh, it's unanticipated by the criteria so what do you need at that point is well Aristotle says you need experience and you need uh, judgment you need the ability and what's judgment you need news and that's the ability to see into an idiosyncratic situation which you've not faced before um, and have a sense of what to do, and you may be wrong. Um, and it's uh, and when you're right, we call that insight and, and brilliance. Um, Richard and I have reached sort of an agreement on that, and we both say, well, what you, what you need is discernment. Discernment. Uh, I think discernment is discernment when the criteria have failed you. You see, virtually the same argument being worked out in the debate about scientific criteria when Kuhn first hit the streets, if he hit the streets at all, um, in the debate about paradigm switches. What do you do in a paradigm switch when the criteria themselves are uh, in question? So in, in situations like that, you need people with experience and goodwill and judgment. I've argued elsewhere that maybe a name for those people is something like a postmodern, you know, ethico-political exemplar. And so I actually draw on Aristotle um, to say, and Edith Visegrad, who has this idea of a postmodern saint, uh, which is someone who spends her entire life devoted, you know, to the other. The problem is that often to be devoted to the other, you have to also figure out where devotion to yourself lies and your community lies. And so it requires these decisions. Um, but I think, uh, and, and maybe Jack, you'll disagree with me on this, I actually think we do need criteria. It's just that I think the criteria probably aren't going to be specified as necessary and sufficient conditions from some sort of universal rational perspective. They're going to be offered from within the communities in which we find ourselves, always hermeneutically invested. But there's still got to be some history of those judgments that tend to yield the kinds of things that we hope for as a society. And so I, I guess I'm, I, I'm not sure that I think the undecidability goes all the way down or if I think that um, we deconstructive folk are here to make sure that the undecidability doesn't stop too soon. And because it's got to stop at some point in order for the decision to occur, at least relative to the standards by which the decision is possible for us as existing historical people. And so at that spot, I, I think I do, 
um, find you know Carney's line. I can't remember which book it is. Um, Jack Zombosik and Rue or, or Keith Putz. I can't remember, but he has this line where he says, you know, <clears throat> eventually Korah or a confessional god, it makes a difference toward which you move. And, and we can't sit on fences forever. And I, I think that's exactly right. But I don't think Richard would be wanting to say Cora doesn't you know, infect the way that we make decisions. The, the decision isn't done. The decision is always undone by asking, well, was it the best decision? What, what could we do better next time? Who got excluded when I was trying to include them? It seems to me that that's where the undecidability happens is, it's, is in the real practices of deliberative critique that we do with each other on the backside of the decisions we made as a result of the criteria we have operative in our spaces. Uh, excuse me, so I, I, I was thinking uh, yesterday and today about uh, kind of different routes for postmodernity that weren't taken, and one, one of the, my favorite mid-century thinkers is Gabriel Marcel. So when he, when he starts to do his kind of move beyond mid-century, he starts with the, the mystery of the body. Um, and what ends up happening, I don't think many thinkers take up this kind of mystery of the body question. And so postmodern thought and uh, deconstruction and hermeneutics become very language text-focused. Um, so in what way, with the, the end of religion and post-modern uh, post thought in general, how do we speak of embodiment and it, you know carnal being, uh, something which Carney himself is writing about now a lot? Um, where, where is the body in this, in these reflections? One way to uh, did you want to go off that there? Um, I, I think the privileging of language uh, is not accidental. Um, I think, um, to begin with at least, um, the body belongs to nature and language belongs to spirit. And um, the realm of meaning has roots in the body to some degree. <clears throat> but the most fundamental meanings, uh, it seems to me, that, that govern human life and, and its values. Um, are the ones that do not stop where the body and its desires stop, but which supervene <clears throat> on those. And uh, insofar as um, those are linguistically mediated, uh, and, and culture is a linguistic phenomenon, a language game, if you like, um, it seems to me philosophically appropriate that there be a privileging of language in relationship to the body. Um, but it, it should never get to the place where one treats the body as if it were a corpse, um, as if uh, human life as an organic phenomenon didn't have a certain level of meaning of its own, um, but a meaning which, as a matter of inescapable <clears throat> fact, is always caught up in the culture um, in, in which it happens and gets diversified in that way. I think I was supposed to shut up. <laughs> you said language of the spirit. Your body's betraying you, Meryl. <laughs> I, I would just, um, I don't want to put another plug in for Malibu, but plasticity is an embodied concept. 
Um, and, and, and as she describes, the, I guess, the paradigm shift that she sees happening right now and which she's instrumental in achieving as we, we, we shift from the epoch of writing and language to one of sort of plasticity, materiality, embodiment. Um, so I mean, this, this notion of sort of plasticity emerges out of uh, the, the way in which sort of neuroscientists talk about the brain. Um, and the dissolving this, this dualism between the brain and the mind uh, and the body and the spirit. It doesn't that become a metaphor for uh, changes in uh, the body politic and uh, culture and, and mm-hmm. other things which are not uh, immediately material in the way in which the brain is? Yeah, but it is. I mean, at that point, she's, I mean, this becomes metaphoric or allegoric. Um, but as she's moved beyond this sort of initial um, kind of work in which she's she's trying to draw out the political and social implications of uh, uh, the brain's plasticity, um, she's I think she's been sort of much more careful in in talking about uh, or sort of remaining within a kind of embodied framework, mm-hmm. um, especially with the more recent work on psychoanalysis and Freud. Um, and in sort of gender relations. So, um, so yeah, at first it was merely a sort of metaphor, but I think it's become sort of more and more material through and through. Feminist theory and queer theory also brought postmodern discourse back and reminded of its body. And that, that was important. As, as deconstruct, Jean-Luc Nancy uh, has been a really important voice in, uh, today, these days, in the last 10 or 15 years. And he's all about uh, feeling, affectivity. Affect theory is is an important part. Very one of the last things David ever wrote was the animal that therefore I am um, trying to. Uh, I think that the interest in language at the beginning was uh, situational. You know, structuralism was dominant. It went back to Saussure, and so the the argument broke out about language. But it soon became clear that it was about a much more, much broader uh, webs and, and interrelationships and uh, d- deeply historical, situated bodily context. So they didn't, they didn't start with it. And even Heidegger tried to abstract from it. In being in time, so there was that transcendental. There was Husserl and Heidegger that had a kind of transcendental, uh, struck a transcendental attitude that s- stayed there for a while until uh, Merleau-Ponty. Really, I mean, Marcel was uh, absolutely on, on the money, but he nobody paid attention to him, uh, and that's because he didn't go through Husserl. I think in order to be heard in the 20th century, you had to go through Husserl, and he didn't. If he had said all those things in, in Husserlian language, he would have been a bigger player. As Merleau-Ponty did. As Merleau did, yeah. And it's important also to say, I think, Jack, you're hitting on this, referencing feminism and queer theory. Um, we, we, we then recognize that deconstruction, of course, deeply is tied to questions of justice, you know, ethical uh, obligation. Merrill talked about the counterintentional gaze, etc. Um, I think that here, then, the simple question, well, whose body? 
right? If we talk about embodiment, traditionally, you know, this has been a very white male, you know, heterosexual sort of upper class body, right? And I, and I think here then, you know, we're going on in different discourses that may or may not be tied to deconstruction, but I would certainly say in the big tent and postmodern way is certainly going to be a postmodern contribution. You know, disability studies, right, Eva Fedekate, et cetera, are doing work, I think it's really helpful there. Um, in religion, there's a lot of work going on now about sort of race and embodiments relative to the practices of religiosity. So people like Monica Miller has a great book on religion and hip-hop that just came out. She's got a new thing she's working on about black gods, these new black gods, and like what it means when Kanye says you know, he's a god, and rethinking the embodiment of religious discourse. My sister actually came into Simmons down at the University of Alabama doing similar stuff with the intersection of race and gender. Um, and then the last place where, again, may or may not be deconstructive, but I certainly think it's postmodern, um, cognitive linguistics is a different approach to the kind of neuroscientific intersection that Jeff's referring to. Um, I think certainly less psychoanalytic, um, but for me that's okay since I'm not deeply compelled by psychoanalysis, but the cognitive linguistics of like Eve Sweetser, um, George Lakoff, and even right now, um, the open theist John Sanders has a new book he's just finished on cognitive metaphor theory and conceptual metaphor as it relates to evangelical theological discourse, which will be fascinating to recognize why, like, even those faith statements for the Southern Baptist seminaries, who, by the way, as I understand it, tweaked things to make sure we open theists couldn't teach there, um, but figured out a way to ignore, or as Merrill put it, sort of, you know, not notice the very rootedness of their theological discourse in the bodies that we possess, right? And so that seems also, I think, just a few different places where embodiment language, I think, is happening. I want to interrupt for one second, because you guys have been mentioning name after name after name, and I have this in my list of things to ask you. Uh, in Malibu, for example, many of us, I think, is probably that name is probably new to us. So I'd like you, at the end, I want you to be thinking about the easiest question you get all day. Who's writing well now that we should be reading? Uh, and that's going to be the last thing we finish with. And so, because some of you are taking notes, and so just give us, I'm sorry, everybody I think by now wants to read Malibu, so let's go be thinking about that list. And I also want something for introductory stuff to Kierkegaard, uh, Heidegger, uh, and, I, and I say introductory like it's really a thing, I know. Uh, but, you know, just some place for some of us to start, because again, we're coming from different directions and haven't read all this stuff. So that'll be the last thing we do. For now, I'm going to ask the question that came through on Twitter last night that I'm going to let you all go and just, you're going to have your conversation. Feel free to redirect questions at yourselves. Uh, you've done a fantastic job so far of showing sort of hospitable disagreement, so I'm sure that will continue as well. It be less hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've learned to trust you. Uh, so what, the question that came to you last night was, and Merrill kind of answered his sort of version of it already, was, is there a difference, and if so, what is the difference between the God of the philosophers and the God of Scripture? And I appreciate Merrill's qualification earlier by saying we're talking about Christianity. So we are, in a sense, talking about Christianity, although it's not itself being a Hebrew text. We're going to make some reference there, too. So that's going to be the entry point. And if we need another sort of uh, a tweak, I'm going to, I'll come back in. But for the most part, I'm looking, they want to hear you talk. I want to hear you talk. So start where you like. God of the philosophers, is there a difference? And if so, what with the God of scriptures? Already deferring to each other. Well, this is great. I, th I think one of the merits of postmodern theory is to try to um, break the grip of the classical god, god of the philosophers and uh, get a better sense of the uh, 
the, this, the, this biblical God and to talk in terms of, of texts and scriptural texts so that you get um, important secular philosophers who are really interested in St. Paul right? and who, who talk about Paul and Paul's writings and you know, read the Greek and, and, and come up with novel and sort of startling interpretations of Paul or Augustine um, so the merit it seems to me of postmodern theory uh, of, the, of the cluster of postmodern theories is precisely I think here's a sense in which the word ontotheology uh, would be useful the god of the philosopher is the god of ontotheology it's a god of, uh, of causality of cause and effect of proving the existence of a, of an, of a being um, and demonstrating its properties. And postmodern theory, and that's you know, that's not uh, you know, that goes back to scholastic philosophy. It was a tradition I was I was I was uh, nurtured in, uh, and it uh, continued in, uh, in and through modernity, and it continues today in in analytic philosophy and in analytic. Uh, and in Thomism, in, in, particularly analytic Thomism, Thomism has become more and more analytic. I think that the Kaya philosophers are through, the, under, through and under the, the phenomenological impulse uh, supplied by Husserl and, and sort of uh, institutionalized for us by Heidegger and the existential impulse of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche shifted, changed the, changed the subject and uh, began speaking of God uh, of, a, of a biblically recognizable God. And so one of the things I was arguing in the presentation of Jeff Derrida was that most of the discussion about Derrida and, and religion up to that point had been about Derrida and negative theology. And I said, look, it's not there, this is not negative theology. I mean, there are interesting sort of residences in negative theology, but it's not negative theology. For one reason, negative theology is Christian. It's, the people that they were talking about were pseudo-Dionysius and the Christian Neoplatonic tradition. And so he's not, he's not interested in that. He's Jewish. This is a very Jewish picture emerging uh, in deconstruction. It's a, it, it's a, it's a, you know, the question is, is the psychoanalysis a Jewish science? I, I said, well, you know, is deconstruction a, a, a Jewish, not science, but some discourse? Um, and Derrida was, I think Derrida was hearkening back to a, um, a, 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 a biblical voice that he grew up with as a kid. He was just, you know, he just absorbed it by osmosis. Then he met Levinas, and Levinas gave it philosophical uh, language. And then it was Levinas, perhaps more than anybody in this whole gang, who introduced the voice of the Bible into contemporary philosophy in the most exotic, strange, weird language. What? He, he put it into no known lang human language. I mean, Levinas is so such an exotic writer. But if you if you come from the, the uh, if you have a biblical tradition behind you, you hear it. You hear it. You get it because he's talking about the Hinyani. The if that's the way you pronounce the the, the Hebrew. Uh, the mirasi of 
and this uh, inverted intentionality, uh, which is a biblical phenomenon, stuff the philosophers never thought of. You know, philosophers thought in terms of heteronomy and rationality. But the postmodern uh, discourse about religion, I think, took a decisively biblical turn away from the God, uh, classical God of the philosophers, which was pretty much the God of ontotheology. Uh, I was part of a, a, a colloquium some time ago that became a little book uh, which was formed around the thesis philosophers of religion in the APA tend to be fairly classical theists and philosophers of religion in the AAR tend not to be. That was put forth as a fact that nobody would dispute. <laughs> and the question that was posed is how do you explain this? And we didn't do a very good job of explaining it. We tried, but we, everyone agreed that it was a fact. Um, and uh, so the, if you ask, well, who is the god of the philosophers? Um, one of the answers you have to give is, well, which philosophers are you talking about? Um, and the, the philosophers of religion in the APA, who tend for the most part to be Christian, uh, for one thing, and fairly classical theists in the context, um, almost always have at least some fairly deep affinity for Aquinas, which means two things. Um, one, they, they don't shy away from the abstract, impersonal, metaphysical discussions that are rightly identified as ontotheology, and so they'll they'll debate about the simplicity of God and and about the various omnis and, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, like Aquinas, um, they're Hegelians. Um, and that discourse is Aufgehoben, they're Kierkegaardians. That discourse is teleologically suspended um, in a biblical discourse in which God is the God I tried to identify earlier a God who is a, a purposive agent and not merely a cause, uh, and a speaker who enters into covenant and who uh, gives commands and who offers promises and so forth. So that abstract metaphysical and the biblical personal, the I-thou kind of uh, business, um, are perceived um, uh, together. Um, and uh, Insofar as that's the God of the philosophers, um, that's the biblical God subjected to certain kinds of philosophical reflection without disappearing. Um, uh, there are other ways, it seems to me, of, of putting God to philosophical uh, subjection in which uh, the person of God, the personal, the, the thouness of God, um, a God who could see me and a God who could address me does evaporate uh, and disappear. And then, as in those passages from Derrida that I was quoting uh, earlier, God becomes a name for something uh, quite different and uh, usually uh, something very human. I'll be brief. I, I, what I love about Jack's work is that I, I think the weakness of God is the recovery of a, uh, of a distinctly biblical conception of God. Um, and, and to the extent that it's scandalous amongst, um, I guess, traditional 
religious communities or Christian communities, I find that um, I sometimes despair over that. The idea that, that you can't sort of recognize the, this discrepancy between the ways by which certain non-biblical conceptions of God have been kind of overlaid um, onto the biblical conception of God that I think Jack's work really does nicely recover uh, and, and, and makes it a stumbling block once again um, as it originally was. So one of, the, one of the things that I teach my students a lot is, you know, when Nietzsche kills God, it's the moral God, he says, who's died, it's the God of philosophers, we read Batimo, and he says, you know, that the death of the God of the philosophers allows for the possibility of the God of the book to signify again. So there's all, we get a lot of mileage out of this distinction. So um, since the fellow panelists have, I think, explained how they make sense of that in, I think, really profound ways, let me maybe at least give one reason why I sometimes worry about the distinction. Um, even though I would, in 90% of other contexts, defend the distinction, here's why I worry about it. Um, and this was, in some sense, part of what I was trying to get to last night in my talk. But so about uh, about two weeks ago, my son woke up at one o'clock in the morning and um, went to the restroom and then proceeded to pass out at like you know one at one fifteen a.m. And my wife and I happened to be in there because he had yelled, you know, mommy. So we went running in. I'm grabbing my son's body, which it turns out phenomenologically, that sort of insider experience. I've never held a dead body, but I can't imagine it feels much different than holding a body that has lost consciousness, right? I mean, just the sheer, there is no muscle resistance that I experience is terrifying, right? And for, for anybody, especially when it's your five-year-old. And so without even thinking, there was no reflection, there was no decision in either a Viridian or a you know, speech act theory sense. It was simply, I found myself screaming, Jesus help my son. I don't think I cried out to the god of philosophy. Right? I wasn't thinking, causa sui, help my son. <laughs> um, I think I was crying out to the god of the scriptures, the, the god that for me is present when I take communion in my churches, You know, the god who is present um, in the worship services when I'm playing drums and it's not just a matter of getting the eighth notes right. right? Whatever that is, that's, I think, the god I cried out to. <clears throat> Here's my worry. <laughs> I, I often wonder when I go to philosophy religion conferences, and I try really hard, um, and maybe as the conversation goes on, I'll try to defend this a little bit more strongly. <clears throat> I try really hard to um, say that the analytic continental divisions in philosophy of religion in particular um, are not things we need to even mess with overcoming anymore. It's just stuff we should ignore um, and start drawing on whatever resources seem helpful for the questions we ask. And so that's why I call it mash-up philosophy of religion, right? You should just mash up, draw on whatever makes sense, do the best work we can in answering questions. Um, that said, when I'm at these conferences, I rarely think to myself, the God about whom we are talking, mainly as Christian philosophers, right, which I mentioned last night, is a problem in all sorts of ways and something we need to also find ways to overcome. But I'm pretty sure the God about whom we speak as philosophers is rarely the God to whom I cried out when my son was limp in my arms. That seems like a disaster somehow. <laughs> and yet, 
it seems like if it's if it's something we bring more closely together, that we've got two worries. We have the ontotheological worry that now the God about whom we speak in philosophy is the God of scriptures, which means we've got philosophical categories overlaid on theological discourse. And so we're never actually now speaking about the God of scriptures. We're only ever speaking about the constructed discourse that's operative in philosophical communities. Oops, right? that's one worry. So ontotheology. The other worry though, is the worry I have about analytic theology. If any of you are familiar with this movement in, in recent years. And my worry there is that philosophy of religion really does just become theology. And again, my reason for worrying about that is because I have too much respect for theologians. I, I think there's a different kind, as Merrill, I thought, did a great job of saying earlier, there's a different kind of immediacy to the evidential sets Right, the ecclesial, revelational, biblical, whatever it is, authorities can operate in theological discourse in, with an immediacy that they just can't in philosophy, and I think shouldn't. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm an officer in the uh, Society of Christian Philosophers, and yet I've very publicly stated I think Christian philosophy is bad strategy for philosophy of religion right now. Precisely because Christian philosophy has itself become the power discourse in philosophy of religion. So we don't any longer need to, in some sense, speak from our Christian starting points, because when we do this, what we're usually saying is, let's ignore the starting points of all those non-Christians, right? And so it becomes the very sort of problematic discourse that all of us on the panel want to resist. So I don't know what to do, right? So, so all that's to say, it seems like somehow as a philosopher, I've got to speak about the God that I speak to, I think, when I cry out when my son's laying in my arms. And yet, if I do that, I think I may necessarily engage in either onto theology or just theology in a way that makes philosophy no longer something that matters. So I don't know what to do relative to that, but that's where I find myself right now wrestling with what is the future of philosophy of religion. I don't, I don't know. Let me add another thing. I think I said I thought that Levinas was a really important source for turning Kantian philosophy in the direction of its biblical beginnings. But I think that that's that's we need to add to that. First of all, Kierkegaard himself. I mean, Kierkegaard thought of himself as a religious author, and. He has his, he has his Johannes Climacus said that he's not trying to create a new philosophical system. Uh, but he revolutionized uh, the direction of philosophy. I think every, everybody who came on the scene in, in 20th century kind of philosophy had come under the impact of Kierkegaard, whose thinking was, was uh, deeply uh, uh, biblical. And then, even in someone like Heidegger, this is why it's interesting when Heidegger, Merrill points to the text where Heidegger talked about correcting theology, uh, which he certainly did. Um, he was correcting it in terms of, a, uh, of being in time. But being in time was um, 
pretty much the ontologization of Augustine's Confessions. He tells us, there's a, he gave a course on St. Augustine's Confessions that uh, was published about uh, 20 years ago and we translated it into English and published it in, Merrill published it in his Indiana series. Translated by one of your students. Yes, two of my students, Matthias and Jennifer. Um, the course on St. Augustine. It was a two-semester course. The other course was on St. Paul. What Heidegger has to say about time, which deeply influenced what Derrida said about time, which you are hearing today, comes from a gloss that Heidegger made on First Thessalonians about not knowing the day nor the hour and not trying to count it up with calendar time, but being inwardly transformed and ready. The, the structure of, uh, and Heidegger took that very scriptural New Testament sense of temporality and rewrote Husserl's lectures on time consciousness and turned them into an ontology so that you would go to a very secular meeting of colonial philosophers or take the strike secular. You just go to the, the meeting of colonial philosophers the, the Society for Phenomenology and Philosophy. Yeah, people going around talking about uh, the temporality of human existence in a way that is at bottom, Pauline, and the holy other, which is at bottom, Levinas, and very Jewish, and not knowing. You know, not knowing the Paul or the or, or the Hebrew scriptures that, that were that are behind it. So, I think that experiential, biblical sense uh, and scriptural understanding of God was uh, foundational. I, I once wrote a little piece on the history of that, and every single one of those people had a degree in theology. Who, the five people who founded the phenomenology group, the philosophy group, all had degrees in theology. And some of them, some of them had renounced it, <laughs> or, and denounced it. Charlie, but they all uh, had started started the theology. Well, this might be obvious. What I'm about to say, I think the, um, the the distinction between the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible, however we're putting it, is is certainly fundamental to uh, a lot of postmodern philosophy of religion and the ways by which people have tried to address the problem of ontotheology or to redress the problem of ontotheology. But that's not to say that somehow the, the biblical conception of God or the biblical portrayal of God is unconditional. Um, I mean, that, that too is a conditioned um, construction that can be deconstructed as well. Um, so, I, I mean, just because one is able to kind of make that distinction uh, doesn't sort of get you out of the fix that I think we've been trying to describe over the last couple of days when it comes to speaking of God. So I have a, a question in for Jeff and Jack. Merrill um, and I both, I think, at least hinted, and Merrill, you can correct me if I misunderstood you on this, 
at least hinted toward the idea that the difference in philosophy and theology, though absolutely constructed, there is no, you know, sui generis distinction in play. These are histories, you know, so that in this case, Jack, I agree with you, it's not a, a meaning claim, it's a history claim. But one of the histories, and a very prominent one, that differentiates philosophy and theology is as a matter of the kind of evidential authorities operative in the two different discursive communities. One has something like capital R revelation, something like ecclesial you know, authorities that operate. One has something like this thing called reason that then shows up with all the sub K's and H's and S's, and yet... Um, <clears throat> I, I, if, if something like that history is right, I guess I wonder why radical theology counts as theology if Jeff was right last night to say it has no relation to an ecclesial or revelational or biblical authority structure, that it's independent of this. Why not call this something like... Um, you know, I'm thinking here of like its relationship to what sometimes is called, you know, critical theories of religion. You know, it seems to me that there's an awful lot going on in the sort of meta critique, especially Jeff in your paper, that sounds a lot to me like a just a, a very substantive and important. Um, supplement to people like Russ McCutcheon and Craig Martin and um, Jonathan Z. Smith, who I know you made some reference to. So why not in some sense identify with that tradition and radicalize it rather than identifying with a tradition historically defined by authority appeals that are now being rejected, which would seem to reject the tradition? I tell you all really quickly, that's going to be, you get the last redirect and you, you can answer that. But we're going to have over time, so this is going to be the last sort of thing you address. So. Well, I mean, I do think some of it is critical theory of religion, but I'm not interested in that so much as I am interested in uh, what, it, what the American Academy of Religion calls constructive theology. Mm -hmm. that, that's, what I, that's what I do. Now, in a, in a simpler day, we would call that philosophical theology. I would rather call it. Um, I, I, I prefer the expression not theology but theopoetics. I think it's a what 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 I'm doing is a is a phenomenology of uh, our experience of what's going on in the name of God. I also and this is what I like about Hegel. I deny any strict distinction between reason and revelation, and uh, I think a revelation what, what we're calling revelation is a response to the unconditional that addresses us, which takes the form of religious narratives and, and, and metaphors and metonymies and uh, parables and uh, its own kind of special uh, discursive resources and, and practices. Um, whereas, uh, you know, philosophy is a, is a different sort of thing. I mean, I, but I don't think, I, I, see, I think the, the under, underlying method, the underlying method is, is, is some kind of phenomenology. Uh, religious discourse is giving word and practice to an address that is not a matter of a, of a divine revelation that came into us and from above and we could have never gotten it by the un, unaided reason. It's, not, it's different from rational discourse, not because it's supernatural, but because it's a, it's a poetics. It's a poetics of the experience of the unconditional that is not a matter of propositions. Okay, so we could literally go forever here. I, I don't know, and some of you actually want us to go forever here. Uh, but we have to actually clear out the place at some point. So, briefly, um, recommendations for them to read 
uh, especially Malibu and uh, Aaron, you mentioned a couple of names earlier, and then uh, Merrill and Jack, whatever you think, just just down the line, recommendations to read. Papers, books, doesn't even matter. Just whatever you think they should be reading in a contemporary context for this discussion. They should be reading us. <laughs> well, so my, my, well, so my recommendations are actually going to sound a lot like that. Um, I, I would say if you want an um, introduction to what postmodern hermeneutics is pretty much all about, I'd highly recommend Merrill's book, um, Hughes Community with Rationality. I think it's fantastic and, and does a great job, again, of locating this in the context of theological discourse. If you want to see an um, excellent account of how a kind of Derridian notion not only of maybe what God could mean, but also what justice could mean as applied in, in some practical way. I think um, Jack's book, um, What Would Jesus Deconstruct, still stands as a very good example of, of what that can be. Um, as a, a little bit of a step back, from those specific context, um, a book that Bruce Benson and I recently wrote came out last year. Um, I actually think is, is I hope, um, a good place to go if you want an introduction to basically the tradition of French phenomenology to which we're all appealing in various ways. Um, sometimes referred to as you know the theological turn in French phenomenology. Um, specifically, people like Derrida, Levinas, Henri, Chrétien, Marion. Um, Bruce Benson and I wrote this. Book simply called The New Phenomenology of Philosophical Introduction. It's geared toward basically graduate students um, or professional analytic philosophers. That's the audience. It's, it's people who don't know this material but are interested in it, and we try to present it in a way that is um, written as much as possible in a kind of analytic, propositionally sort of way, which I'm sure makes um, Jack itch. But we did it that way precisely because we were trying to, in this case, not bridge two different discursive communities, but bridge the kind of commitments that people like us hold to the kinds of strategies that other people um, operate by. So I'd say those three. Yes. I'm terribly disappointed that I didn't get to answer Aaron's question. But this gives me the occasion to um, sort of put a plug in for an unpublished book that, on radical theology that I, I hope will be coming out in the not too distant future. In which I where I hope with Merrill. <laughs> We're working on it. So I mean, in that I try to I try to make the claim that there, radical theology is a discernible tradition of thought with its own lineage. Um, and, and I think that's, it, it's not an, an argument that, or really a case that's been made, and, and I try to make it there. So be on the lookout for that. Um, for Malibu, I would, I would say uh, that the starting point for most people is her book, What Should We Do With Our Brains? And that, um, and there she kind of articulates a, a real kind of radical philosophy of, of freedom based on uh, a material sense of embodiment. Uh, that I think is really intriguing and, and, and suggests some interesting socio-political implications to that. Um, if you're interested at all in the kind of connection I'm trying to make between uh, Malibu's work and plasticity and liberation theology, I think the book to look to is Changing Difference, in which she uh, interrogates uh, kind of prevailing thought within gender theory and feminist thought and really kind of takes on both Derrida and Butler uh, in that book. I think that's, it's really it's very accessible. There's a chapter in there uh, where she kind of situates herself specifically in reference to uh, Kant, Hegel, and, and Derrida uh, and, and puts those differences in critical relief. Meryl? 
Um, I want to begin with a plug for my own latest book, uh, Kierkegaard's Concept of Faith. Um, but um, Jack has mentioned the importance of Husserl uh, as background for all of these discussions and has mentioned Derrida's uh, writing about Husserl. Um, <clears throat> Levinas has an important uh, book on Husserl, one of his, well, in, in a sense, he introduced Husserl uh, to the French. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, I'm surprised that it only moments ago Marion's name was mentioned for the first time. And we've gotten this far without mentioning him. But he's certainly a major uh, figure in the discussion that we are having. And he has a book in which he uh, takes off from Husserl and, and tells us how we need to revise Husserl in order to do what needs to be done. It's called Reduction and Givenness. It's not the most interesting book of Marion's, but it's certainly fundamental and important. And um, any of his writings, but especially the uh, essay on the saturated phenomenon, which is now located in I don't know how many different places uh, it's appeared, um, that would be um, something that would be uh, uh, very important uh, to look at. He's, he's an author that deserves more of a place in this discussion than we have given him this weekend. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, the most the, the most uh, the clearest expression I've ever been able to give to all this stuff from my own stuff, my own work is what would Jesus deconstruct, and that 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 book sort of keeps on keeping on. You know, and it's being used in intro courses and stuff. So you know that, that, that if you actually want to hear the the the, the, the specifically Derridian version of this. Thing we're calling radical theology that, in the plainest language that I know how to put it, that, that's, that's that. If you want a, a, a more popular uh, voice who is, don't underestimate him and think that he's just screwing around, uh, I, I read Pete Rollins, Peter Rollins. Peter is trained and he puts things in a sort of conversational way that makes you at first think he's not to be taken too seriously take him seriously he, he puts things clearly that are aimed specifically at people who can't spend their whole life trying to figure out what difference means mm -hmm. um, if you want a more uh, sophisticated, uh, academically oriented survey of what's going on in contemporary uh, philosophy religion, uh, what's Krina Geschwanter's book, which sort of goes through everybody? The, the book on postmodern apologetics? Postmodern apologetics, yeah. It came out with. Uh, that, that, that's, an that's for an academic audience, uh, and it's, it's a more technical account, but it's comprehensive. Amazing a survey of, of the field, and she has going for her that she is trying to fill the shoes of <laughs> the distinguished philosopher to my left. And if you also want a, a very much more technical but very focused debate that is the sort of stuff that maybe Merrill and I sort of in various ways are representing and Jeff and Jack are in various ways representing as sort of at least two different options within deconstructive philosophy of religion, um, Stephen Minister and I put together a book called Reexamining Deconstruction and Determinate Religion. And in that, um, Jack has a uh, very, I, th I think it's actually the best Jack 
um, summary of your thought that I've ever read in a technical way. And he cashes out different versions of postmodernism. Merrill has an essay in there where he's also responding, sort of, you know, defending what we call religion with religion. Um, so that also, I think, is a very technical but very focused attempt to do the kind of conversations we've been having here um, in a little bit more, I think, feisty uh, way. <laughs> Just in case you don't know, the best introduction to Derrida's thought is Jack's book, uh, The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida. Mm -hmm. And Jacques Derrida would probably tell you that if he were here. Yeah, thanks. All right, so Carrie's going to close this out. Thank you so much for everything. <laughs>